0: Well, hello there everyone. This is Dr. Leslie Kernison of Better Health While Aging and welcome to today's COVID update for aging adults and their families. Um, Today is Wednesday, September 7th. And uh, we've had some developments since the last time I did an update, which was about six weeks ago. Um, So today I'm going to be especially sharing updates on the new booster that was just approved in the past week and also talk a little bit about some newer variants on the horizon, uh, what we might anticipate um, this fall and what I think older adults and their families should be aware of at this time. So um, specifically, um, I'm gonna of course recap where we are with COVID right now. Uh, I'm going to talk about the current situation with Omicron variants um, and then especially what to know about the new bivalent COVID booster that uh, has just become available. Uh, I'm also gonna share some statistics on who has been dying of COVID this summer Um, because that was something I thought about as a lot of people moved on past it. We still often had 300 to 500 people a day dying. Who were those people? So I'll tell you what I found out and also what the effect of boosters are. Um, in terms of reducing deaths. Um, so, uh, that way you'll understand the booster recommendations I'm going to make. And then I'm just going to share a little bit of information on, uh, if you do catch COVID, what to know about Paxlovid. So hopefully by the end, you'll get answers to some of the frequently asked questions that I'm hearing, like, should you get the new COVID booster and when? Is it going to wane? Is it going to work against new variants? Um, you may be wondering if COVID is over. Um, so you should have the answer to that by the end. Are any new variants or surges expected? And what should you expect for the fall? And what should you do? So let's start with where we're at right now with COVID in the United States. And um, so cases have come down um, uh, about 30% since midsummer. So that's the good news. Um, the bad news is that the level is still pretty high. We're still at about eighty to 90,000 cases per day. And uh, that's, of course, just uh, reported cases by PCR. So actual cases are 3 to 10% more. Test positivity is still at 30%. Uh, Hospitalizations peaked um, earlier in the summer at 44,000 people. They're now 36,000 people, but the deaths have not peaked. We're still at about 490 per day. So, Uh, I'll show you again uh, one resource, although now all these resources, now you have to subscribe to get them. But here is the, uh, hold on, let me just move a little something over for a sec. Um, Okay. So here is the New York Times uh, data tracker. So uh, you can see that this is, this was the beginning of the summer that we went up, we're coming down, and it's nice, but it's just not It's not low, right? It's not low like we were even earlier this fall. Never mind back here. Um, And uh, let's see. You know, here are uh, reported deaths by day. And, you know, we're still kind of at this plateau where the daily average is still in the high 400. So not as bad as it's been. But... um, I have to say this is when we got I guess our the best we've done over the past year seems to be about 200 some deaths per day. And then in terms of hospitalizations, this is always I think helpful to see because it shows it by age. And so you can see every time we go up, it's especially older adults who get hospitalized um more, but that's you know, we're starting to see a decrease in hospitalization in that age group and in other age groups. So that's good. Um So again, case counts are not, you know, they're good for the trend, but we should assume actual numbers are much higher. So you can look at something like Walgreens, um, where the test positivity rate, you know, is better than last week, but still fairly high. So, uh, we're doing better than we were six weeks ago. Um, and you know, the numbers are not low. So I think it's important to be aware of that um, as always. And then in uh, nursing homes, we see that they had a peak uh, earlier in the summer and it's starting to come down. We're at about 10,000 cases per week in nursing homes and 254, and I always look at that because that's really reflective of the impact on our, our frailist, uh citizens. Now, um, in terms of the uh, variant uh, situation, So here is the CDC's variant proportion tracker. And what we can see is that BA5 has been dominant throughout the summer. It kind of took off at the beginning of the summer and has has been dominating. But we have another one that has been growing, which is BA4.6. And right now it's at 8.4%. But if you look at different regions... The region where it's highest is actually Iowa, Kansas, and Missouri. Um, It's up to 18%. And we're also seeing it more in um, uh, the eastern seaboard, I would say, and a little bit in the southeast. Um, So that's another thing is when we look at national numbers in the states, we're probably having different kinds of, uh, see here, it's 10%. In uh, New York, New Jersey, and let's see, yeah. So you can look a little bit New So this is this has been um, creeping up. So let's go back to the slides for now. And the main reason why that is of interest.
1: Just one sec. Let me switch my share back. Um, Oh, I'll talk more. Losing control of my slides. All right. Uh, Let me talk more about the variants in a moment. Um,
0: I wanted to just mention that uh, we saw a BA5 Wave or spike or surge, depending on the area in many parts of the world. In Europe, they had a quite notable, like, up and down in France and Italy and Germany. Um, Japan actually had, uh, their highest death rates of the pandemic. Recently, also quite high in South Korea, same in Australia and New Zealand. Um, in other parts of the world, like Africa and, um, some parts of South America, uh, it seemed less pronounced when I look at the uh, the curve. So in general, worldwide, we're seeing a decline, which is good. Um, so the variant situation. Um, so BA5 seems to be dominant in most places, and we have BA4.6, which is slowly growing in the United States. And um, research in the laboratories at how it responds to antibodies and to uh, blood sera from people who have previously had COVID. Um, does show that it may be better than other variants at evading prior BA5 antibodies. And concerning to me, it is resistant to Evusheld. So um, Evusheld is the long-lasting monoclonal antibody, which is recommended for people who are immunocompromised uh, and has been protective against many of the Omicron variants. Um, But in the lab studies right now, um, BA4.6 is evading is able to get around um, Evusheld because it has mutations. Uh, So that's a little bit worrisome. There was also talk earlier this summer of a variant called BA 2.75. It even got a nickname for some reason called Centaurus. It became dominant in India, but didn't actually cause a big surge of cases. It just became the predominant variant. Uh, And India didn't have much um, BA 5. Uh, Before that, it's currently growing in Singapore. And then there's another one that is BA two point uh, seven five point two, um, which has been growing in India and seems quite adept at avoiding antibodies from vaccines and um, prior um, prior infections. So um, the concern, of course, is that when um, that first of all, because we have so much COVID circulating, the virus is always trying to figure out, well, how can I infect people? And if most of the people it encounters have protective antibodies from vaccines or from prior infection, then that sort of selects for a variant that has a mutation that can get uh, around that. Um, So we have a couple uh, potentially concerning ones on the horizon, but it's really unclear whether they are going to cause um, a surge. Most experts think it's unlikely that we'd have a super sharp um, surge like the Omicron when we had this past winter, but they might cause a little wave, a little like up down, or they might just keep things kind of at the current plateau, which is higher than many of us uh, in public health are um, comfortable with. So that remains to be seen. So this raises the question of the booster. So the big news as of the past week in the United States is that we have a new COVID fall booster that has been approved by the FDA and the CDC. It is a bivalent booster. I'll explain what that means um, in a moment. And it's available. um, It's recommended right now for all adults in the United States. And it's available if you are at least two months um, after your primary vaccination series, so two doses of mRNA vaccine uh, or possibly one if you did get Johnson & Johnson, or if you're at least two months um, post your last booster. And until now, the booster was a, a dose of the original um, mRNA vaccine. Um, but now we have these bivalent boosters. So bivalent means that the booster covers two strains. This is actually something that we've done for flu vaccines for a long time. We have them cover two strains of influenza A and two strains of influenza B, if I remember right. So now they've combined. Um, so it means they have spike antigen for two types. So one is the original type of COVID uh, vaccine spike, the one that has been in the mRNA vaccines since they came out. Um, And then the other one, so originally when they asked the vaccine companies to develop an updated booster, this past winter they started working on that and they made a booster to Omicron, and at that time Omicron was BA1. Um, And they, they developed it, they started studying it in humans, they study it first in mice, and then when they came to the CDC to talk about it, uh, in June, the CDC said, well, BA1 is over. We've actually already had BA2 and that's over. And what we're facing now is BA5 and maybe BA4. So can you make a vaccine that incorporates that? And so the drug companies went and did that. Now, it turns out that BA4 and BA5 are two different subvariants, but they have the same spike protein. Um, so, um, So that's why it counts as two strains and not three strains. So it's technically ba 45 5 um, And so the Pfizer booster contains 30 micrograms of the mRNA in it, and 15 is the original, and 15 is the uh, Omicron ba 45 spike. And then the Moderna booster um, contains uh, 50 micrograms with 25 of the original and 25 of the new one. So just for comparison, when we had the original vaccines, Pfizer was 30 micrograms in each dose. Moderna was 100 micrograms in each dose. And when they did boosters for adults, Pfizer was, I think, again, a 30 microgram dose and Moderna did a 50 microgram dose. So, um, so now we have kind of the same overall doses as in the previous boosters and they are divided in two between the original type of mRNA and the new type of mRNA. And what's interesting and important to realize is that when the CDC and FDA approved these new boosters, they basically unapproved the old booster. They ended the emergency use authorization and said that the previous, what we call monovalent booster, so the one that had just the original strain, they said that that is no longer authorized. So in principle, You can't get it anymore. Um, Now, they say that if you're going to get vaccinated, like the original vaccine series, if you're somebody who at this point still has not chosen to get vaccinated but would like to get vaccinated, um, the original vaccine series is still the original, only original strain of COVID mRNA. So you're supposed to get two doses of that and then the latest booster, which is this bivalent booster. So hopefully that's not too... Um, confusing to people. So so of course, people currently have a lot of questions about the new booster. Um, So you may be wondering things like, will it work? Will it be effective against variants that might be coming up, such as BA 4.6? will it wane? And so waning means when we see the um, effect of the vaccine diminish over time. And we're usually looking at two types of diminishment. One is diminishment waning against what we call symptomatic infection. So catching COVID and maybe feeling a little sick. Uh, And the other one is waning against um, what we call sort of severe COVID, getting hospitalized for COVID or dying um, from COVID. So people, um, since we there have been issues with waning of vaccine protection, um, even though overall the vaccines are totally worth it. Um, you may be wondering, will the booster wane? Uh, you may be wondering, does the booster reduce long COVID? Um, and then what if you've recently had COVID? Because a lot of people in this country have had covid um you know, since last December, <laughs> since the first Omicron wave. And then uh, I feel like the summer has taken out almost everybody else who didn't get it the first time around. And some people have even managed to have it twice, um, although not really that many. There was actually a study of re-infections um, uh, for Omicron BA5 in Portugal, and they found that of people who had Omicron in the wintertime, BA1, only about one and a half percent of them um, got um. BA5. So it it seemed actually reasonably protective. Um, So to answer the FAQs, let's talk about the data on bivalent um, boosters. Um, So uh, Moderna and Pfizer both did present human data on their bivalent. Again, it was BA1 that they originally developed um, in uh, late winter, early spring. And they found that um, these boosters created higher antibody titers compared to the fourth dose of the original booster. Now, what they noticed, I think especially in the Moderna data, was that people who had not previously had COVID or been, vac- or been vaccinated, uh, if they got um, just uh, the BA1 vaccine, they had a narrower response of antibodies. Um, Because what they want is to give your immune system the stimulus and then for you to create what they call a more diverse, broader range of antibodies. Um, And the fact that our immune system often does that is why um, vaccination has been protective and helpful, even as variants have evolved and are fairly different from the original strain. Um, So this kind of raised this made them i think a little nervous of creating a booster that was just omicron ba1 and i think that's part of the reason why the current booster is uh is bivalent um and then they were told to create uh an updated uh bivalent booster with ba45 and to have it ready by early fall and so what they did is they actually presented just mouse data they are doing human trials um, but they're in progress and the data is, uh, is not yet available. Um, and so if you want to see some of that data, I will share in the links associated with this update. Um, this right here, um, these are the presentations from the uh, ACIP is Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices at the CDC. Uh, from September 1st and 2nd. This is last Thursday, Friday, not even a week ago. Uh, And all the slides of the presentations are currently here. It's quite technical, but uh, this right here, the clinical considerations, they end up going over um, a lot of
1: the data. Actually, I take it back. It's not this one that has the mouse data. It's this one, which is super long, 131. Here we go. Yes, if you get into, um, here they are showing the potential risks. Well, the mouse data is definitely in the presentation of Moderna and Pfizer, and I think it's recapped
0: in these two, but I won't look right now. I will just say, though, that if you if you want to see the nitty gritty data of exactly what they did, it is all here. So come to this
1: page first and then take a look through the slides and knock yourselves out. I look at so
0: many different resources in preparing these that later I sometimes have a little trouble finding where I saw what. Um, Okay, so um, the mouse data showed that the bivalent vaccine generated higher antibody titers to all Omicron variants compared to the original booster. So this seems to be a good thing. Um, So in terms of answering the frequently asked questions, will it be effective against BA 4.6? So BA BA 4.6 has mutations in the spike protein compared to BA4. So, um, so will it be effective? Um, it's likely to reduce hospitalizations, but it's unclear how well it's going to reduce transmission and infections because it's the spike protein that is often pretty involved in generating the initial infection. So uh, will the booster wane? So um, probably. Uh, studies in general have suggested that the fourth booster, so some people got, um, I wrote fourth booster, but I should have written fourth dose. It was the second booster for people who had an initial mRNA series. Um, so studies have suggested that the fourth dose in those people who got it began to wane against infection in two months. Now, it's disproportionately older people um, who got a second booster, a fourth dose. Um, and we know that waning is more likely to happen as people get older. It's, you know, it happens more with the aging of the immune system. So, uh, this booster, um, might wane, uh, as well. Nobody knows really how fast, um, does it reduce long COVID? So we don't know, um, it's actually been a little hard to parse out the effect of um, boosters on long COVID, in part because we keep having a different variant every few months, and, um, and also people increasingly are now having COVID when they've already been vaccinated, when they may have already had COVID before. So there is some data that suggests a little less long COVID uh, after boosters, uh, but we don't know for sure. Um, and then what if you've recently had COVID? So I'll talk more about that in a bit, but the CDC right now says that if you've had COVID in the last three months, you should uh, you should wait. They recommend waiting at least three months before you get uh, the booster. And um, I'll explain in a little bit that um, why the data to me feels a little unclear on the benefits of boosting if you have what we call hybrid immunity, which means that you've both been vaccinated and had COVID, which is now the case for many people in the United States. So you may be wondering, um, so since we have mouse data but not human data for this new booster that is bivalent with um, BA45, why is it being recommended right now? And um, there are a couple of reasons. So one is that the CDC did modeling studies um, where they, uh, they basically tried to predict how many hospitalizations and deaths we would have in the fall under a few scenarios. So one scenario was, what if you start boosting everybody um, in September rather than in November, or just people age 50 plus um, in September, November, and um, and uh, and what if there's um, kind of no new variants? So we have something kind of similar versus a new, what they call immune escape variant. So something that can escape. The pre-existing immunity that people have from vaccines or previously having COVID, uh, they modeled those scenarios, and their model suggested that um, that you could really avoid a lot of um, hospitalizations and deaths if boosters were recommended to everybody. And they assumed that the uptake would be similar to uh, flu vaccine uptake, and you know younger people get vaccinated less for the flu than older people, but some still get vaccinated. Um, they found that you would uh, um, avoid a significant number of hospitalizations and deaths um, if, uh, if they started the boosting um, sooner. And that is probably about getting people at risk, uh, the booster coverage sooner, and also about among people who are less at risk, the people who are under age 50, uh, reducing transmission somewhat when more of them have recently been boosted. And again, if you wanna see the modeling,
1: it is, hold on, let me look again. Okay. This is in Dr. Oliver's CDC presentation slides.
0: This is where it presented the results of the modeling. So um, here, if you uh, recommend it to people 18 and up, instead of just 15 and up, you get a 20% reduction in hospitalizations, 15% reduction in deaths. Um, And then if you don't have a new variant, starting in September rather than November, you could prevent, they thought 137,000 hospitalizations and almost 10,000 deaths. So that was the part of the reasoning for this booster uh, recommendation. All
1: right, back to the slides. So um, that said, I want to acknowledge that you may hear conflicting booster advice.
0: And I have been following various experts with interest. And it's been interesting to s- to me to see the debate among them. Um, so uh, I think this is because we're essentially in uncharted territory. Now, it's not totally uncharted to release an updated... Booster type vaccine, you know like a a new version of an existing vaccine we do that with the flu vaccine. we reformulate the flu vaccine every year and it is actually done based on mouse data, not human data so um so it's true that it's not entirely new to release a booster type um, uh, vaccine based on mouse data um and covid is newer to us so um It's not clear whether the booster will effectively prevent BA 4.6 infections or for how long. Um, And then some people have, you know, a concern about, um, you know, or have asked, do we know what the longer term consequences of frequent boosting are? Now, no risks have been observed so far. There are, you know, theoretical questions. Um, about the impact, there's also an idea called imprinting. It's also called antigenic sin, which basically says that the way the immune system responds in the future is shaped by its initial experiences. Um, Nobody knows really how it's going to play out though with um, the vaccines and the boosting. Um, And I think there's also conflicting advice because there is this sort of question of often what's better from a population health perspective, um, you reach different conclusions if you're thinking about saving lives and hospitalizations for a population as a whole versus what makes sense for uh, an individual. Uh, So for instance, when younger people get vaccinated for the flu um, or probably boosted um, for COVID, the likelihood of individual benefit for them personally is pretty small. It's just that when collectively enough of them do it, that protects more vulnerable people and we have seen that with flu vaccine actually that when more when staff in a nursing home when more younger people are vaccinated, you know rates go down overall in older adults, and we end up losing fewer older adults to complications of uh, of the flu so I think that's part of the debate that people also have concerns about you know already not enough people got boosters when they first became available, and if This booster doesn't have the effect that the public expects. You know, will they lose confidence in it? So there are a lot of considerations in how to make the um, recommendations. And I think this is why even among the experts that I consider very reliable and well-qualified, I'm seeing them come to different conclusions um, about um, boosting. So, And we'll cover a little bit of that back and forth in a moment. So if you yourself are wondering what to do, and you may well be wondering what to do, This is what I think is important to know. I think it's important to have uh, at least some sense of the risks of COVID, and you should have them for your age group, because the number one factor that affects how risky COVID is, especially when it comes to hospitalization and death, is age, age and serious comorbidities. Um, So, you should have a ballpark sense of what the risks are and be familiar with what we know so far about the the benefits of vaccines and boosters. Um, So in terms of the risks of catching COVID for everybody, I would say they are, first of all, there's the possibility of having prolonged symptoms. So if you catch COVID, some people feel like they just have the sniffles for a week and some people feel like they have the flu and feel kind of crappy for a week and you have to be in quarantine or isolation. You can't work, it's disruptive to your life. But separate from that, some people are still feeling unwell four weeks out. Tired, brain fog, um, shortness of breath, you name it. Um, that seems to be about 20% potentially of people. There was actually a recent study that just came out and they found that number as well. Then there's what I consider significant long COVID, which is not just you're still more tired than usual at four weeks, but is having um For me, it's having, you know, I know people who are disabled after they've had COVID who get dizzy when they stand up and, you know, have not been able to go back to work. Um, So that, you know, really more substantial symptoms that really keep you from doing your daily life activities, uh, impair ADLs and IADLs, um, as as I might say, activities of daily living and and instrumental activities of daily living. That's probably like one to 5%. Depending on uh, the study, it may be becoming a little less common now that so many people have had COVID or with the variants, um, but still, I think that's that's not trivial. Um, there are signs of increased risks of later health problems. So a lot of the studies coming out are showing higher risks of cardiovascular disease, of diabetes, of this, of that, of clots in people who've had even mild cases of COVID, A lot of those studies were done uh, in people before vaccination was widespread. We're now starting to get data on how likely it is when people have been vaccinated. It's hard to quantify that risk. It's a small risk, um, but probably there. Um, And then the ones that we really worry about are hospitalization um, or death from COVID. So how do you know, especially, what the risk of hospitalization or death might be for you if you get COVID? And uh, so I thought about this a lot this summer because I was struck by the fact that people were kind of treating COVID as if it was over. But at the same time, we had 350, 400, 450 people on average dying every day. And I thought, who are those people? Um, And who was getting hospitalized? Uh, and especially for those who were dying, how old were they and what was their vaccine status? So I decided to do uh, a little bit of digging and I wanna show you a data resource that um, can be used for kind of back of, I use sometimes for back of the envelope uh, calculations. And um, so let me switch right here. So the CDC, for those of you who like data, has some pretty cool data sets that are publicly available. So this one is called rates of COVID-19 cases or deaths by age group and vaccination status. Um, and um, sorry, this is very technical, but these are you know the columns in the data sheet. Um, and what you can do is you can uh, create a visualization. Now I already created the visualization earlier Um, and so you can both get a, um, a table of data. That's a little more specific, like you can filter it. So here I said, just for July, the outcome being death. And here I said to show the data based on age group. So you see it cut in slices here of, um, age five to 11. This is actually 12 to 17 over here, 18 to 29, 30 to 49, age 50 to 64. This is all ages lumped together. Uh, 65 to 79 and 80 plus. So I, I like this because it breaks down um, a little bit more people at age 50 and up. And it's really at age 50 that we start to see significant increases in risk for hospitalization and death due to COVID in most people. Uh, there are younger people who are at very high risk for autoimmune or immune conditions, excuse me, um, and other things. And then here I have put in as the measure the crude unvaccinated incidence rate. So uh, all the terms are divided are explained um, right here. Um, so vaccinated. So it's it's how many uh, how many of the event there were among uh, per hundred thousand population. Um, so that's for vaccinated. And then there's another one. This is the same one here for. Uh, Unvaccinated, so the incidence rate. So how many per hundred thousand people? And um, so what we can see right here is that it was, um, and this is just for, this is just for one week, in July. So the CDC has these uh, mortality morbidity weeks. Um, you can look it up and then see. They'll, they'll put what month it corresponds to. But this this week actually is the week that ends on Saturday, July 2nd. So it's really the last week of June um, right here. And they, and so see, um, there are also cases, but I decided to just look at deaths right here. And so you can see how many people died in each age group during that week. Now, this is not entirely uh, national. This is a sort of representative sample. It's a select U.S. jurisdiction jurisdictions but we're going to assume it's representative of the population. So we had we had more deaths than are counted here. I'll show you in a moment um, what I did with that. but if you look at this, you can see really the difference between um, first of all, you see that there were <laughs> per hundred thousand population. there were way more deaths uh, among people um, who were 80 and unvaccinated, right? and still more among those who were 65 and 79 unvaccinated. And then next was people who were 80 um, and vaccinated. And then you see that the number of deaths is like trivial. So you really see it moving up as people get older. So then I wanted to learn a little bit more about it. And so um, if you're a data junkie, you can actually copy these tables and put them into Excel and then you can do a few other calculations on them. So let's take a look at that. Um, So I put it into an Excel spreadsheet and then I did a few additional sort of calculations. So first of all, I wanted to know, um, so here are how many vaccinated people during this week, um, this last week of June um, died. Right here, And so you can see the number goes up quite a lot as we get into higher age ranges, but I sort of thought, well, what percent of the deaths for the week was that? So I added up the number of deaths. Um, these are the number of deaths in each age group. It's uh, combining vaccinated and unvaccinated. So it came out to um, 1,192. And so of that, 32% of the deaths were um, among people who were age 80 plus and um and were vaccinated. Now, that is not to say that 30% of the vaccinated eight-year-olds in the country um, died. Of course not, right? Um, uh, it's just of the deaths um, for for the week. And actually, if you calculate, if you look at the total number of deaths here, the average is 170. So that's about half of what the reported nas- nationwide um, daily average was at the time. So maybe this is about like half the deaths that are in these select uh, jurisdictions. Um, now, only 20% of the deaths were in unvaccinated 80-year-olds. However, um, people who are age 80 plus are, have high vaccination rates. So 87% of them are vaccinated. There was 7 million people in that fully vaccinated population and only 1 million in the unvaccinated population. So you, uh, you want to be careful about how you compare uh, the numbers. But But overall, we could see that 52% of the deaths were in people who were aged 80 plus. That's what we can see, and um, 34% of them were in people who were aged 65 through 79. And in people who are under age 50, it was uh, you know less than 5% of the deaths. So you know most of the people who die of COVID at this time are um, are older. Um, so the next thing I was a little curious about is can we get a ballpark back of the envelope estimate for the likelihood of dying uh, if you have uh, COVID? So this is a little trickier because um, because nationally, we're pretty good at counting deaths and hospitalizations, and it is hard to count cases. Um, so, uh, so I thought, well, if I compare it to the number of cases reported in the same data set, uh, two weeks before, what would we get? Um, and uh, so I put uh, numbers of cases um, over here. And um, this this is going to be, I mean, this is really going to be an overestimate because we know there are way more cases than are counted. Um, but what we ended up with was among the vaccinated um, 80-year-olds, we ended up with like 2.7% of them dying and unvaccinated was 42 So um, whereas for people who were age 65 through 79, uh, uh, unvaccinated mortality rate was 0.6 and uh, unvaccinated was 1. Um, I really don't know how much those compare to actual figures because, again, we have so many cases that are unreported, and I'm not sure how they're counting cases at this point. I think it highlights, again, the protective effect of uh, vaccination, however. All right. So uh next question that I was interested in was the effect of um boosters, um, because that's really important to know as well. And so the CDC has data sets on that as well. So this one shows um deaths by age group and vaccination status and second booster dose. Um and then they also have right here on their data tracker. Um, now, what I don't like about this is that they have lumped together everybody age fifty plus. I don't like that because as you saw, let's say over here, there's a big difference, you know, in um death rates between people who are in the fifty to sixty four uh age range and people who are 80 plus. So especially given this is the group that is highest risk, I feel like it's almost unconscionable that they would lump everybody 50 plus together for data. But this is unvaccinated people here. Uh this is people who had the vaccine but no booster. This is the vaccine plus one booster dose and then you see it drop down with the second booster dose. Um or you can go to the data set over here and you can visualize it. And uh, so this is it right here. Uh, this is the legend. Um, so again, people who are unvaccinated have the highest, so this is incidence, deaths per 100,000 in the sample population. So being unvaccinated and older is, um, had the, the highest uh, um, incidence rate. Of, of death, And then what I feel like you g- get out of this is that the biggest difference really is going from unvaccinated to vaccinated. And then the booster made a difference. Now this is again, oh, hold on. Let me look just for July. This one I hadn't uh, filtered just for July when we had second boosters available. So here we go. Okay. Um, so I'm putting just July because by then people who had had a single booster were probably several months out and it had waned a bit. And so you see you see a little improvement with one booster. We'll assume that they're several months out from their booster. And then you see like the second booster. We should also assume for here in July that people were fairly close to their second booster Um at that point. Although we don't know for sure. The thing about these kinds of data sets is there are lots of things we don't know. That's why it's only good for kind of trends and back of the envelope calculations, not for for definitive answers. But what we also see is that the effect of the boosters makes a much bigger difference in people who are over 65. And look over here, see, for people who are 50 to 64, it's small. (laughs) It's a really small difference um, in this week. So so what this tells me is that, again, the older you are, the more important it is to get, um, the more likely it is that you're going to benefit from boosters. That is,
1: um, that is what this uh, told me. All right, we'll go back to the slides. So to recap some of the data um
0: so you know looking at the deaths in a week um this summer 5% of them were in people under age 50 um more among unvaccinated people age 30 to 49 and then there were 10% of the deaths were in people who were age 50 to 65 34% age 65 to 79 and 52% age 80 and then because the older age groups have much higher vaccination rates we do see you know, the deaths split um, more, uh, more evenly or sometimes even more deaths among people who are vaccinated. But that's partly because just most people in that age group, especially when we get to 80, are vaccinated. Um, but we can still see when we compare the incidence rates for deaths, comparing vaccinated people to unvaccinated, that there's a huge difference, especially as people get older. And so then, you know, my back of the envelope calculation of, you know, vaccinated versus unvaccinated risks of dying was uh, for people in their 50s it was 0.1% versus uh 0.2% if you're unvaccinated. Um people 65 to 79 it was 0.6% versus 1% and people who are 80 plus it was 2.7% versus 4.2%. So um we kind of see that you know here like the vaccination was sort of in absolute terms re- reducing it by half. Um and most people who are getting COVID are, are not dying at this point, right? But vaccination still has a quite significant um, effect. Um, so uh, when I tried to do back of the envelope calculations on you know the effect of boosters, these were some of uh, the numbers that um, that I got. Again, I did it just to see what I would get in terms of the mortality rate. But the problem is that the case number especially feels extremely... I know it's an underestimate. Um, So I'm actually not sure where I would peg right now the risk of dying um, of COVID um, because it's so unclear to me how many people are getting it. And also because at this point a lot of people who are getting it have had it before or been vaccinated. Um, But I think the conclusion still stands that boosters are most important for people over age 80 and they also reduce risk for people who are over age 65. Um, but the younger or healthier you are, the smaller the absolute benefit in terms of mortality for boosters. So, um, and uh, recent studies have shown even more evidence of the benefits of boosters. So, in Sweden, they did a nice study of the fourth dose in nursing home uh, residents and in people who lived at home but were age 80 or older, and they found that the fourth dose was associated with a reduced risk of death from all causes in. Uh, long-term care, residents, and in the oldest old, um, especially during the first two months, and then they started to see some waning, and then their follow-up period ended. Um, similarly, there was an Israeli study of uh, the fourth dose in nursing homes. So the corresponding incidence of hospitalizations for mild to moderate COVID-19 for severe illness and mortality, um, so in their study population, there was 0.9% of the group that got um Oh, no, this is the incident, So not the, pers- oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. This is comparing the fourth dose to the third dose. Now I remember. Um, and people who had a third dose were at least four months out. So we can consider it a waned third dose, right? Um, so uh, people who had a fourth dose, their hospitalization um, rate was uh, 0.9%. And if they had just had a third dose, it was 2.8%. So you could see a nice drop in hospitalization rate there. Um, for uh, what they quantified as severe illness, it was 0.5% among people who had a fourth dose and 1.5% among people who had a third dose. And then for death, it was 0.2% for people at a fourth dose and 0.5% for people who um, had a third dose. So again, that shows the benefit of a recent booster in people who are frail. These are also, you know, kind of lower mortality rates um, than in my back of the envelope calculation. So that might be because, again, the case rate that I have working with is a huge underestimate. I'm not sure um, how well they reported cases there. And then we also, in general, in the States have higher mortality rates than other developed countries
1: Um, that's been consistently shown. So that might be a small effect as well. Okay, so in terms of,
0: so there are all these uncertainties about the fall bivalent booster, but this is what seems likely to me based on our experience with COVID and boosters so far. Um, First of all, I think the new booster will be safe. We've, by this point, given mRNA vaccines to billions of people worldwide, and the safety profile has been excellent. It's certainly been safer than catching COVID. Um, So I think it's going to be safe. Um, and it's going to be most likely to benefit those who are at highest risk for hospitalization or death due to COVID. So, again, those are people who are age 80 and older, people who have cancer, people who have serious chronic illnesses. And one of the ways that I think of a chronic illness as serious is have you been hospitalized for it? Like, have you been hospitalized for your heart failure? for your chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, for kidney problems? Um, or is there a significant chance you could get hospitalized? I mean, there, there are people who have mild, high blood pressure, mild asthma, mild diabetes. They may or may not be at increased risk for COVID hospitalizations, but um, especially as people get older, uh, you know, many of them will have chronic diseases that will occasionally land them in the ER or in the hospital. And to me, that's like a sign of somebody who is truly at higher risk. And then, of course, people who are in nursing homes are at high risk. They tend to be either older or quite frail, and um, and that puts them at risk. Uh, so I think the booster is going to be uh, especially beneficial to people who are in that group. And I think also that the protection, especially against COVID infection, is likely to be short-lived. So this is what we've seen with the prior boosters. Is uh, First of all, we saw that with uh, immune evasive variants, even people who had been recently boosted were catching COVID. So we saw that with the Omicron wave, uh, especially with the Omicron waves onwards. We saw it a little bit during Delta, but especially during the winter Omicron wave and during Omicron This summer, And the data shows that when you've been boosted, you do have a lower chance of getting COVID. But, you know, in studies, it was like people who had recently been boosted, got COVID 25% of the time and people who are or they got COVID, excuse me, like 20% of the time and people who had not been boosted 25% of the time. So at a population level, it makes a difference. Um, But you're not going to be bulletproof from COVID just because you've gotten boosted. You're just going to reduce your chance of catching it or transmitting it. Now, what is protective against catching COVID, as you know, far as I can tell is um, having had Omicron in the last few months, that's much more effective um, in reducing your risk of catching COVID than the booster. Um, so if you're relying just on booster to reduce your risk of catching COVID, um, I think it's gonna wane within two months. And I think it's likely to be imperfect, especially since we already see some immune evasive variants coming up. Now, what about boosters if you're under age 50? Um, So let me say the CDC guidance is that all adults should get boosted. That's what they say. Um, And it's true that if all adults get boosted, That is going to be help protect the most vulnerable among us. I think the apps, the likelihood that if you're under age 50, you personally will avoid a hospitalization or death is very small because already, if you're vaccinated and have had a third dose, the risk of hospitalization or death if you're under 50 is small, unless you're in that minority of people who is immune compromised, has cancer, or has like some pretty serious health problems. Um So yeah, if you're under 50, the reduction in risk for hospitalization and death is going to be teensy. And that's especially true if you've already had Omicron this year, which a lot of people have had. (laughs) Um, Is it going to reduce your risk of long COVID? I think it's unclear. And if you're concerned about long COVID, and actually, I I worry about long COVID um, because I know people who are in my age group who are disabled from COVID. I mean, again, it's not most people, but even if it's just 1% of the people You know who catch COVID nationwide, that adds up to a lot of people who are suffering long term consequences. Um, If you're worried about long COVID, I think you're better off taking precautions to avoid catching COVID, uh, especially when cases are high, than relying on the booster. The reduced risk of transmission, again, is likely to be temporary and wane within a few months. That's what we've seen in the past. That's what I would expect. Um, unless we develop a totally different technology for boosters. And there are people who think we should be working on that. They actually approved, um, just recently in China and in India, nasal vaccines and inhaled vaccines. And there's a question of whether that's going to provide, um, because the virus first comes in and encounters your system through the lining of your nose and your lungs. So there is a question of whether a nasal or inhaled vaccine could be more effective again, at reducing that transmission and people catching it. Um, but that's not the booster we have right now. Right now we have another injected one. Um, but again, if enough of us get boosted, it should reduce hospitalizations and deaths among the most vulnerable. And that counts for something for sure. Um, now what about if you are age 50 to 64? Um, so I think age 50 to 64 is really a transition zone. So physiologically, in terms of the health of your body it's a transition. It's when we see people develop aging related conditions, such as falls or sensitivities to medication. Um, some people sooner than others, because we biologically age at different rates, uh, based partly on our genetics, partly on lifestyle factors um, such as how we eat, exercise, stress, you know, um, environmental exposures, Uh, And then also um, in that range of 50 to 64 is when a lot of people develop more significant chronic illnesses, partly related to the aging of their body. So um, there's a lot of variability in how uh, physically vulnerable people are in this age range. Um, So if you're in this age range, I think you could, you know, if you're like 52, (laughs) right, and in good health, you could think of yourself more as like, I'm in the, you know, similar to the under 50 group. And um, if you're 60, but have really significant, you know, um, chronic conditions that you see the doctors for often, or even go to the ER, you know, think of yourself as someone who's more vulnerable and more likely to benefit from uh, the booster. But in general, getting a booster becomes more important as you get older or if you have chronic illnesses. And if you are 85 and in excellent health, I know many people like you, (laughs) you know, there are totally people in their late 80s, who are still climbing mountains and are in great health, you are still physically more vulnerable and your immune system is older than when you were 65. I would still recommend the booster um, myself at uh, at that point, but people will make their decisions. Uh, so what about booster timing? So for most people, it's going to be most protective, especially to reduce transmission during the two to eight weeks after getting it. So I think this puts us Many of us in a dilemma because um the fact is many of us travel and see family members, especially older family members, for the winter holidays, first for Thanksgiving and then for Christmas. So from that perspective, you know, getting boosted in late October or early November means that you're your window when you're going to likely to have the most protection from catching and transmitting COVID is going to overlap with that holiday travel and gathering time. Um, But again, the CDC recommends all adults get boosted now unless they've had COVID in the last three months and people who are at highest risk should probably consider getting the booster now because we still have a fair amount of COVID going on. So um, especially if you have not had COVID in the last three months. Now, if you're 80 plus and you have had COVID in the last three months, Um, I mean, again, you're not supposed to get a booster (laughs) for three months. Um, so, um, and if it's been a while since you had your last dose of vaccine or booster, it's more important to get the new booster sooner. That is how I would think about it. So what if you have had Omicron already? So the CDC just says wait three months and boost. Um, now the research is not definitive, but, um, It does consistently show that hybrid immunity, so being vaccinated and then having COVID, is extremely effective protection. Seems to be more effective as protection than having COVID and never been vaccinated or just being vaccinated. So, again, so many people in this country have had Omicron. (laughs) Lots of people had it this summer or this spring, and then we had a huge number of people who had it in the wintertime. Um, So, especially if you're under 50, if you've had three doses of the vaccine and had Omicron, it's kind of unclear to me what you're going to get from the booster. um, Other than again, uh, possibly a, you know, reduction in your chance of catching COVID for the next few months. But again, having already had uh, Omicron so far has been decent at providing protection. So especially if you've had in the last six months, uh, you know, I I think they don't bring up the question of whether you've had COVID because they don't want to confuse people. But I want to say that if you've had COVID and did okay, that's a a reassuring sign. Um, So um, again, a fall booster, if it's been more than three months since you had your COVID, might reduce your risk of catching or transmitting COVID. The further out you are from when you had COVID, the more likely it is that that booster is going to help you with reduced transmission. And we really don't know whether in younger people it's gonna reduce hospitalization or not. So to kind of summarize my booster recommendations. um, So first of all, in general, any adult who has not been vaccinated, I would highly recommend that any age. Um, And um, there is evidence that a third dose is useful to everybody that the first two doses, especially if you got them close together, didn't give your immune system enough time to ripen and kind of take advantage of the vaccine and that a third dose months after the second dose, you know, really helps consolidate the immune system's learning. So I do recommend three doses for all adults. And then the fall booster, especially if you're over age 65, especially even more important if you're over age 80, if you haven't had Omicron yet, especially if you're frail or in a nursing home, or if you have chronic conditions that have caused hospitalization. So another thing, which bivalent booster? So either is fine. Take what you can get. It's actually looking like it's getting a little, some people are reporting some difficulty getting boosters, partly because there's not a little uncertainty about how it's going to get covered, who's going to pay. The federal government bought the fall booster, but apparently some of the pharmacies are giving people a challenging time if their insurance won't pay. So, So I would say if you want the booster, just take whatever they have. That said, Moderna contains more antigen. Again, it's 50 mics instead of 30. And um, some of the research over the last you know year has suggested that Moderna's protection has lasted a little longer, um, possibly because it's a bigger dose and a bigger stimulus. And it's a model we've used for flu shots for a long time of developing flu shots for older adults that had more antigen because aging immune systems uh, sometimes need a bigger stimulus to respond. So if you had a choice, I would lean towards Moderna Um, but we don't know. And it's, I think it's more important to get the booster if you think you'd benefit from it than to pick and choose among them. If you're not high risk, um, get it to protect the most vulnerable among us is what I would say. And
1: we should not rely only on, um, boosters. Uh, sorry, phone took off. Uh, We shouldn't rely only on boosters to reduce
0: COVID for ourselves and people we care about. There are lots of other ways to reduce COVID transmissions, such as masking indoors when case levels um, aren't low, like now. They're not low yet. They're not as high as they were, but they're not low. Uh, Making sure indoor spaces are ventilated, um, testing and staying away from others if you feel unwell, and it can take a few days for a test to turn positive. So you know, not going with friends and being like, "Oh, it's just a cold. I mean, maybe it is, Maybe it's not." We can also advocate for funding of better vaccines. So Congress has not renewed the funding that the White House wanted to for testing for treatment and also for vaccine development., uh, but China and India have recently approved inhaled and um, nasal and inhaled vaccines, which is a type of vaccine that many experts think might. Make a meaningful dent in how we manage COVID. Um, We can advocate for better indoor air quality. For people who are immune compromised, Evusheld has been underused. And if you have already had it, they have now announced that you can get another dose after six months. Now, the lab data suggests that it's going to be less protective against some of these newer variants. We'll see what happens if these new variants really take off. And again, that means that we don't just want to rely on vaccinations or even Evushel for protection. If cases are high, I recommend, again, taking precautions and thinking about other things that we can do. So let me know. Um, wrap this up soon. A couple words about Paxlovid as a COVID treatment. So this is the antiviral medication. It's become quite widely used when people have COVID. It was approved for people who are older or at higher risk, but it's been given to a lot of younger people who didn't seem very high risk. As far as I could tell, I think there's a lot of clinician discretion on who to give it to. Um, So we now have real world studies reporting on the efficacy of Paxlovid. And what they're finding is that it definitely helps. It reduces the risk of death and hospitalization. If you are, um, so in one study that uh, that was done, it was um, if you are over 65, especially, is where they saw it, even if you were vaccinated. Now, that study, which was done in Israel, also enrolled high-risk people, and they had a definition for high risk, so I'm not sure they had as much leeway as they do in the States. But they also enrolled high-risk people who are age 40 to 64, and they did not see a reduction in hospitalization among those people. So, um, so again, definitely something to consider for people who are older, and, um, who are older, uh, for sure. And then there's the phenomenon of Paxlovid rebound. So this is when uh, people start taking Paxlovid after they have COVID. It's a five-day course. They feel better. They test negative for COVID after five or more days, and then they start to feel symptoms again. And when they do a rapid test, they are positive again um, because their COVID virus has come back. And they are definitely contagious during this time. There are documented instances of transmission to family members. How common is it So, first of all, Joe Biden had it. His wife just had it. Anthony Fauci had it. Lots of people I know, including two younger people, where people under age 50, where I was wondering why did they take Paxlovid? uh rebounded um so a recent research study you know they found the rate was 5% anecdotally it sounds like it's a lot more to me uh i'm not sure what is generating that discrepancy some people say that based on the biology of covid and paxlovid if you start taking it very early after you realize you have covid and your immune system hasn't had time to kick in enough um but that's what's generating the rebound. And if people were to wait until like day three of symptoms and then take it, it would be better. Um, Still being researched. Um, Rebound does increase your time of being contagious, your time out of work. Um, So I don't recommend Paxlovid unless you're over 65 um, and potentially at higher, higher risk. So if you do catch COVID, um, I recommend resting a lot, especially if you're one of those people who's getting exhausted when you move around or exert yourself. Not everyone who has COVID feels that way, but some people do. Um, I do think Paxlovid is a good idea for people over 65, especially if they're at high risk. And in that case, you should monitor yourself for rebounds, which means being uh, paying attention to whether you feel like you're getting symptoms back or not and potentially testing if you have access to the rapid tests um, during, you know, days six to 10 to see if it comes back. Uh, and, um, if you have COVID, you should assume you're contagious until your rapid test is negative and stays negative. Um, so I think now the quarantine guidelines, you know, again, are not very strict in most places, but really, um, you should just wear a mask and avoid other people breathing in what you're exhaling until your rapid test is negative. That's like basically that easy and it can take people 10 days or more to turn uh negative. Um, we also know that it's totally possible to have COVID and not give it to everybody in your household, even though these new variants are quite contagious. If everybody in the house wears a mask, you open windows, you ventilate. Um, lots of households have avoided spread throughout the household. So d- don't give up. Um, uh, if that's the case, so in terms of what to expect for the next six months, I mean, I do feel like we're in a better spot now than we were this past summer, for sure. I just think we're not in the spot where I would love us to be, which is where cases were really low, uh like they were a while back. um so for fall, a lot of people we want to hope for the best but plan for the likely. A lot of people are hoping that things. We'll continue drifting down or even really come down and we can have a nice quiet fall. I think that would be great. There is the possibility that with newer variants, we could end up kind of at the plateau uh, where we're at or maybe a little lower. We could maybe have a wave. Most experts think like a true spike is unlikely. You just never know. COVID has thrown so many curveballs at us. And then for the wintertime. A lot of experts anticipate that we'll at least have a wave during the wintertime, in part because there are holiday travel, holiday gatherings, and people are just inside a lot more because of uh the weather. Um so um, so yeah, if you're considering a booster, definitely get it in time. I would say no later than uh October or November if if you're able to, because that's where it's gonna, I think, really make a dent. So just to summarize and wrap this up. COVID rates are better than the summer, but not yet low. We don't yet know whether they'll get truly low this fall. And um, we still have hundreds of people dying every day. And they are mostly people who are older uh, or have serious medical conditions. Um, So the new bivalent booster is most important for this group. Also important for people who are age 65 plus. Um, Should reduce risk a little bit for people in their 50s, especially if, Uh, They have chronic conditions. Uh, And then for people under 50, I would say the main benefit is going to be to protect more vulnerable people. Um, So getting boosted can help you protect um, your vulnerable family members and, you know, be of service to society. But if you get boosted, I, I would not count out, I would not expect the booster to keep you from catching COVID if it's going around a lot where you are. If you've had COVID in the past few months, that is what's most likely to be protective as far as I can tell. Um, and last but not least, I still think it's worth taking steps to get COVID less often. Um, I think at this point, you know, almost nobody is going to never get it. And it's a little bit of a question of how many times is each of us going to get it within the next, you know, within this uh, three to five year period. So unless you've recently had it, I do recommend continuing to monitor case counts around you, Uh, through wastewater analysis, test positivity, and then you can follow the counts for the trend, but of course they're an underestimate. And I do recommend considering precautions unless cases are low, such as N95s or similar masks, ventilation, and being careful in crowded indoor uh, spaces. So I'm gonna stop there. Thank you so much for watching this COVID update. Please stay safe, take care, enjoy your fall, and let's keep our fingers crossed and hope that we have a nice next few months. Take care, everybody. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.